everybody. Welcome to episode 17 of the podcast that goes Nick. I'm your host, Jason Minimal. In this episode, we will be looking at all the Wolverine-related books. Oh, I'm sorry, not all. The rest of the Wolverine-related books for January of 2013. So, all right, let's pop those claws and dig in. Here we go. Okay, so first up, we have our segment, And the X-Men. We're going to look at Wolverine and the X-Men number 24, entitled, Ain't No Sin to be Glad You're Alive. This is written by Jason Aaron. David Lopez is the penciler. Alvaro Lopez is the inker. Maury Hollowell with James Campbell does the colors. VC's Joe Caramagna is the letterer. And the cover is by Ramon Perez and Laura Martin. And of course the cover, we've all probably seen the uh, press releases as Marvel is trying to uh, shock us. Um, is Wolverine the Storm making out on the cover? You know, I remember um, back when Morrison took over uh, X-Men, made new X-Men, they had that Ian Churchill cover of uh, Wolverine making out with Jean Grey. This one doesn't look quite as uh, passionate, <laughs> but it's still they're still making out. They're still mugging down. So we have that and promises of that inside the book, which raises its own questions and feelings or whatever, depending on how you feel about that possible relationship. But, you know, we'll get to that. Um, so we start off at the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning. We have Storm is playing hologram chess with somebody and having a conversation. And it sounds, they don't show you until the next page, but I'm pretty sure just based on the way they're talking to each other like an old married couple or such. So you're pretty sure it's the Black Panther. And of course that's confirmed when you flip the page. But um, they talk about, they have some small talk and they're playing chess. And we find out the Storm's living in some floating capsule that floats around the campus. T'Challa asks if she's seeing anybody. And Storm's like, no, we're not talking. We're not going to talk about that just yet. And T'Challa says that our marriage may have been annulled, but you will always be in my heart. You will always be my queen. Which I thought he broke it off. Not sure about this. Um, anyway, Storm meets him at chess. And Black Panther said she wants him to be happy. 
but promise me one thing, not him, anyone but him. You know, talking about whether Storm is going to move on or not. And of course, when we see anyone but him, there's a motorcycle parked in front of Harry's hideaway and Wolverine's walking up to the bar. I need beer and lots of it. The bartender's like, I can't do that. He's like, is that supposed to be some kind of joke, Harry? And we see a uh, astral form of Rachel says, don't even think about it. And of course, Wolverine's got an arrow sticking out of his shoulder and his uniform's all ripped up. And he's like, son of a... And then we see him back at the at the mansion. And he's like, Rachel! <laughs> he's kind of stalking towards the door. And then they come out to greet him. And Rachel is not... She hasn't gone prohibitionist on Logan. She's just letting him know that he can't get drunk because it's his night to watch the kids. It's the teacher's night out. Then they're going to go out to town. Warbird... <laughs> Talks about how she was promised that it would be indiscriminate coupling, which I guess is promiscuous sex, I'm assuming. Uh, Deathlock says, This unit is serving as what is commonly referred to as a de- designated driver. I am told this is a role of great honor. So again, we get some nice Jason Aaron humor. Angel comes out. He's been given the honor of buying everyone's drinks. And then Dupe has an old, like, hat from the... Uh, depression and a bow tie on. Wolverine complains about being left there with the kids. And Rachel says that he has to do it because Kitty's out on her first date with Bobby. And Wolverine, then they all leave. Wolverine's like, wait a second. Kitty's on a date with who? And then we switch over to uh, Kitty and Bobby on a, having a rooftop dinner in Manhattan. And they're very awkward with each other. And they start talking about the X-Men and the school. And Bobby thinks he sees Spider-Man and Daredevil. And some girl with pink hair dressed like the Thing. Which is a nice little FF plug. Written in one of the other Marvel Now books. And they start to kind of run off and go be X-Men. Because they can't handle being normal people. But Rachel projects herself again mentally. It says, this is Rachel reminding you you're on a date. So stop worrying about the rest of the world for five minutes and have a good time. And they both sit back down and decide they're just going to talk about normal things. And they stare at each other for a couple of panels. And I got to say, uh, David Lopez's facial expressions are pretty fantastic. Did a really good job. A lot of emotion... Uh, you can see the awkwardness on Kitty Pride's face and on Bobby's face here in a couple of pages. It kind of gets really excited and you see that really nice. Um, so then we switch to Idy is visiting Brew in the X-Men futuristic hospital bed. And she brought him his favorites. Tofu bacon tacos, raw beets, and a strawberry soy shake. And she's going to read him the homework assignments. Because Dr. McCoy gave them 18 pages of science worksheets. And she laments to him that they never got to have the dance that she promised him. And of course, Quentin Quire is standing outside the door. Looking in kind of, not really angrily, I guess jealous, jealousy is the right word. As Idy is kind of fawning over him, brew in the coma. Alright, so then we go to the peak, which is the satellite headquarters of S.W.O.R.D. The Beast has gone to visit Agent Brand. 
and she thought it was a date, but he's really just there to watch video files of brood autopsies, and she pours wine for herself and laments being stood up for a brood, but it's not the first time. Then we see Kane Kilgore and Sabretooth. They're out in, I don't know, Alaska or the Antarctic or something, and they're hunting and they're betting, and uh, they kind of talk smack to each other, and then you find out that they're hunting either Eskimos or Arctic scientists, I'm not sure. Then we go back to the school, and Quentin Quire is at the statue of Professor X at his tomb. I wonder if they know he's not in this book at this point, that he's not there anymore, but I'm not sure. And Quentin Quire is yelling at the statue, and turns out young Jean Grey is out there, and she introduces herself. And he uh, gets all awkward. He's like, I'm Gene. No, I mean, you're Gene. I'm, who am I again? Quentin Quire, that's me. I'm, yeah, I know what I'm doing here. And he thinks that he's going to score with Gene Gray. And she starts talking to him telepathically. My reasons for being here sound a lot more noble than yours. <laughs> he's like, oh, hell, you're not supposed to be a telepath yet. <laughs> And she decides that it's okay because at least it's a normal conversation instead of like bonding over the big mission or the danger to the time-space continuum. It's just two kids talking and she'd rather have that even if he's a little bit pervy. (laughs) She says, I'm sick of people gawking like I'm some sort of museum exhibit come to life. And Quentin gets a nice grin on his face and he says, in their defense, they did that even before you died. And she tells him that the future sucks, and he's like preaching to the choir. Then he says, <laughs> he goes, so I didn't hear a no in there. And it's kind of like a, I don't know, a nice teenage cool guy face there. Um, and Gene says, I didn't hear a question. And he goes, want to come back to my room? And no. <laughs> Fair enough. I can wait. And she says, you're awfully, you're awfully confident, Quentin Quire, pink-haired boy of the future. And he says, look around. There's one thing we do better than coming back from the dead. is randomly hooking up with each other. And then on cue, we switch back to Bobby and Kitty, talking about how their date's not working. And Kitty's kind of depressed a little bit. Obviously about Professor X dying... And he was one of the most powerful mutants. If he couldn't do this right, kind of what chances they have is kind of kind of her spiel. And talks about how she and Iceman used to be the youngest X-Men and now they're in charge of all the kids. And Bobby says, you know, talks about how he, he couldn't even make her laugh. And that's when she kind of goes into her tirade. Or not a tirade, a little spiel of sadness. And Bobby gets a nice laughing face. And he's, again, the facial expressions, fantastic. He's like, you're kidding, right? I laugh my head off every time anybody calls me Professor Iceman. I never imagined myself a father. Now look at me. Suddenly I've got two dozen superpowered teens to look after. I suppose I could just stand around navel-gazing, moaning about how awful the world is. God knows we've done our share of that over the years. But what good does that do these kids what good does it do me being grown up doesn't having have to mean being endlessly morose and having fun isn't just for five-year-olds no the day i can't laugh at how ridiculous this all is 
while still loving every single second of it is the day I walk away and find a new line of work. Which my job's not that hard. Certainly not life and death with mutant kids and everything. But Iceman kind of has my... I kind of have his philosophy. You know, when you see crap, you just kind of have to laugh it off. Joke about it. Keep your own spirits up. And so that's kind of... So I relate to that. I like it. And then Kitty says, you know what? You're right. Our lives are ridiculous. So why are we trying to sit here and pretend we're normal people? You know what I like to do when I need to get away? I like to go for a swim. Let's go for a swim. And he's like, I didn't bring my bathing suit. And she's like, not that kind of swim. She grabs his hand and phases him through the floor, down through the sewers. And then we have Wolverine slicing through the page. Very cool panel. Kind of thing you can only do in comic books. Really nice. And he's slicing his way through the danger room and the shower. <laughs> Storm walks in and is like, I don't remember there being a danger room in here. And Logan talks about how it's more realistic because it's more dangerous. But Storm says, it's not the danger you built here that most impresses me, Logan. It's the hope. <laughs> and Logan kind of smiles and says, right, what can be more dangerous than that? And Storm says that, uh, she says, let's see. As endearing as it is to see you so terribly frightened in this place, my friend, I'm going to need you to begin working your way through that. Before <laughs> he goes, I'm just a babysitter. And you know what? This panel, okay. This panel reminds me of what of what Lopez has reminded me of, this, this issue. And not completely. But at times, his characters and shapes... Remind me a little bit of the way Frank quietly drew the X-Men. And I mean that as a complete compliment. And it's not... I, I'm also not saying that Lopez is copycatting, because he's not. It's very much distinctly Lopez and unique. I'm not super familiar with him, but I've read a little bit of his stuff. And it's definitely him. But there's some shades of, of Frank quietly, I think. And some of his angles and his figures and his uh, facial expressions. And so Wolverine and Storm kind of start fighting in the danger room. And Storm says it's, it's weird that being in the danger room actually reminds her of happier times. And she misses Professor X and Kurt. And she says, it's funny because she says, and I know even you, Miss Scott, though you never dare admit it. <laughs> Wolverine says, if by Miss you mean would love to stab in the face, then yes. Then she talks about how her and Wolverine used to do other things in the danger room. And Wolverine's like, Aurora. And she's, she calls him out for being uh, shy or bashful. And Wolverine's like, don't torture me. And Storm talks about how Kitty, since she is going to be in charge of the young X-Men, the young X-Men from the past, that she asked Storm to take her place as headmistress of the whole school. And Wolverine says, I know, and what's your answer? And they're fighting kind of Dr. Octopus-looking arms. And Storm says, before I tell you, I'm going to need you to do me a favor. Do these showers work? And then uh, we switch back to Kitty and Bobby, and they're running around doing different things. For example, they're going to protect a barn by phasing it so the tornado will go through it instead of destroying it. They go out to the desert somewhere and show some kids some ice. And they get back to the school, 
And Iceman's like, that was seriously the greatest date ever. And Kenny says, it was great. So maybe we shouldn't do it again. <laughs> and they're like, okay. So then we switch to Wolverine and Storm's in the shower with just a towel. And she goes, I lied, Logan. I need you to do two favors for me. And this is really cool. Um, it kind of sets some more of the tone for where the book is probably going. And she says, first, I need you to stop being afraid that you'll break these kids and get in there and help them the way only you can. And Logan's like, Aurora, are you sure this is such a good... That's Headmistress Aurora. And no, Logan, in this moment, I'm only sh really sure about one thing. This is where I belong. Now shut up and do the other favor before I change my mind. And we get our first nicked of the issue as Wolverine uses his claws to cut Storm's hair into a, back into a mohawk. Which, that's pretty brave on both their parts. <laughs> it is weird he doesn't just pop one claw. He does all three. That's good for cutting through the hair, but this close shave, you know, on the bald mohawk, I think I'm... I'm gonna even I'm gonna even trust that Wolverine can use a claw like a straight razor and shave somebody and even give her a nice smooth dome next to her mohawk. I can see that would work better with one one claw than all three. Just saying, seems like it'd be a little safer. But then uh, they start making out and then we see Bobby and Kitty making out and Toad's like, "Blah, too much kissing." I liked it better when they tried to kill each other. Then we see Idy kiss Brew on the cheek. And she walks out crying, talking about how much she misses him, that he made the place more fun. And we have a panel of her walking out, then a panel of her in the doorway with silence. And then Bruce sits up, and he's like, Rrr. and she turns back around, still tears coming out of her face, but smiling, and a great panel. Again, Lopez, great with the faces, fantastic. And she's like, Brew? But then Brew jumps out of the bed, growling, with his claws out and is just drooling like a rabid animal. And to be continued. But then they kind of ruin it with the next issue panel. Because we see the bruise on a leash. So we have pretty good indication. Oh, and in the, in the Savage Land. Which I'm assuming may or may not relate to Savage Wolverine in some way. I don't know. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Anyway, we know at least some degree how Brew's going to be for at least the next issue. Because they got him on a leash, so we can't be like all the way back to old Brew, or they just let him go. Alright, so this issue, what happens? Uh, basically, people hook up. I will say it's kind of one of those nice off issues. I've said before that this book's starting to remind me in tone and attitude of... In, in a good way. This is a good comparison to some of the, the best Claremont years. And a story like this would fit in great in those years. Kind of the one-off issue of downtime. There's no like big battles or big story. It's just kind of a day or in this case a night in the life of the X-Men when they're not having to be X-Men. They're just being themselves. And I like that. I like it a lot. I like kind of the awkward conversation between Storm and Black Panther. I like the, the teachers going out and the humor with that. I like Kitty and Bobby's date and how it's, they realize how awkward it is and, and joke about it. And they go on some adventure and say, you know what? We can't be normal. Let's just have fun 
using our powers but not saving the world or fighting. We're just going to go use our powers and have fun, have adventure. And how Kitty's hesitant about continuing the relationship, but then Bobby, then they end up making out. So I guess they're at least kissing anyway. And I like the relationship. I think it makes sense. You have kind of a triangle between Brew and Idy and Quentin Choir, but then Quentin obviously has a thing for Jean Grey, too. Yeah, Beast and Agent Brand kind of not being able to get out of their own way with the science stuff. Kate Kilgore and Sabretooth on a bro date, out, you know, doing bro stuff, killing people. <laughs> oh, just a lot of good character development, a lot of good dialogue. And then, of course, it's a Wolverine podcast. Wolverine and Storm hooking up. Now, I have mixed feelings about this. I think they make a good couple, potentially. And of course, this is this pops up every now and then throughout X history. You know, Storm even referenced it in the book, saying, remember when we did other things in the danger room besides trying to kill stuff? There have been times in the X books, particularly in Uncanny X-Men, and where Wolverine and Storm have... If not officially dated, at least, at the very least, they've made out a few times. At, you know, at the very least. So, there's no surprise there, necessarily. The Storm's on the rebound. It makes sense that if she's been attracted to Wolverine before, she'd probably be even more attracted now because of what he's doing with the school. Like, he's kind of stepped up his responsibility, and I would think that would appeal to Storm, being a leader. You know, and there is something very primal about both of them. Kind of an energy there that would, would attract to each other. Um, you know, Storm is the goddess from Africa. She's always been very free and and had a little bit of a wild streak. And of course, Wolverine obviously is has the same. So that all makes sense. And if it wasn't for how the last Wolverine series ended, I would be gung-ho about this. I'd be... Completely sold. Let's let's see where it goes. I want to see Jason Aaron's version of it, his take on it. And the one thing kind of holding me back, and that's the way the last Wolverine series ended with Melina, with Wolverine kind of being sad and lamenting that he couldn't remember her, and that he wanted to kind of start over and get to know her again. And I feel like we're just kind of kicking that to the curb. And I honestly, I'm afraid she's not even going to show back up for a while I, we as a reader are just supposed to forget about her and I don't like that I know that series ended and it was a different writer he's not writing Wolverine stuff anymore Caleb Bunn is he's out of the X universe for now so I know Jason Aaron and uh, Bendis and everybody else would do their their own thing with Wolverine and they have that right but I just feel like Melita got dropped unfairly and just the way Wolverine sounded very sincere that he wanted. Now, granted, him making out with Storm this issue was pretty spur of the moment. It just kind of happened. It was organic. It wasn't forced. It wasn't planned out. It just kind of he gave her the haircut and she was naked. And what else are you going to do? <laughs> and you got a naked hot chick with a mohawk that you just, you just cut her hair, which is kind of intimate anyway. 
So obviously it's going to get Wolverine's uh, fire going. So I don't necessarily blame him. I don't know. I just, I wish there would have been more resolution to the Melina story before we got this. That's all. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Jason Aaron will bring her back in and we'll see some conflict or some, you know, like a love triangle there. Bizarre love triangle. <laughs> Every time I see you falling. Anyway, um, without, actually I would prefer that. A is nice comic book, X-Men, classic drama. And B would just make more sense. It would follow the past story better than her just kind of disappearing. Like, I'm hoping that's not what happens. So, jury's still out, I guess, on where that goes. But, um, yeah, right, as of right now, a little bit mixed feelings. But I, I do think Storm Wolverine make a potential good couple. I just wish they would have... I want resolution. And if I don't want, if I don't get resolution, then I want drama and conflict. <laughs> so, Jason, Aaron, give me one or the other. Okay, well, um, that said... We're going to go ahead and move on. I'm going to give uh, Wolverine and the X-Men number 24, three out of three claws. All right, cool. All right, so next up we have Astonishing X-Men number 58. This is written by Marjorie Liu. The art is by Gabriel Hernandez-Walta. Colors by Chris Peter with Dan Brown. The letterer is VC's Joe Caramagna. And the cover is by Phil Noto. And it's a nice Phil Noto cover with some nice kind of neon 80s colors. It looks cool. It's got Warbird over some kind of contraption that looks like it's from Tron. And it's shooting out like digital light. And you have Gambit and Wolverine in the background. Uh, this story basically picks up where we... Obviously, with the last issue, as, as most issues pick up on the issue before them. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. But of course, uh, the astonishing X-Men, Warbird had tracked an alien artifact to Egypt where she found a member of Fiendin, which is an alien race that the Shi'ar had tried to wipe out because they were artists. And the Shi'ar have no feelings, like Christian Bale with the puppy <laughs> in that movie. What was that movie called? Equilibrium. <laughs> so, uh... We see the, the Fiendin guys, he's painting in Egypt. Warbird finds him and attacks him. Turns out as when he stab when she stabs him through the eye, he's just an android. And he can't really create he can only like he can't create anything original. He can only copy art. And he was made to be a legacy of the Fiendin. So there aren't really any alive. But he's a robot to look like them and to feel like them, whatever. And Warbird can't bring herself to kill him, and but she decides she can't kill him because when the guy blasted her with that machine, it made her feel something, or no, with some the gassy powder. It made her have feelings, and she wants him to cure her, and then she'll kill him. Um, then Gambit shows up and says the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents are on their way, so it's time to skedaddle. So they run, Gambit, they get cornered, but Gambit causes an explosion, which I don't like the way Walter draws his powers here. And it, it, first of all, it's yellow, and I've never seen Gambit's powers be yellow. That's ticky-tacky and really picky and finicky, I know. So I'll forgive that part. But it doesn't look like he charged anything up. I mean, maybe he stole like some 
fruit or rocks and charged them and threw them and that's what blew up. But I don't know, the way his powers are drawn, it looks like a cross between um, Sunspot and Boom Boom. It doesn't look like Gambit, but it's definitely him. Anyway, so Karma has the getaway car and they're off. And they're driving through the desert and the android alien stabs Warbird because she had left a knife in his eye and takes back his machine. They jump out of the car, but Wolverine has an army of desert warriors waiting for him. They tie him up and they go out into the desert and then sword and or shield show up. They want to know where the aliens are, referring to Warbird and Fiendin. Because remember, they got the whole Men in Black thing going on now. So they fight the shield guys. The Fiendin guy sticks the thing, artifact, in his chest. Blows up in some light. Shows Warbird, like, a message. And then he, the guy, the robot, alien, turns into a building. Which is the Museum of the Lost Fiendin in Egypt. And there's a, and, uh, their legacy lives on through him as a place to showcase their culture in Egypt. Then Warbird is in a studio and she's going to try to embrace her inner artist even though it's against her warrior code and against the Shi'ar, but she's going to do it anyway. Uh, The last paragraph here is her internal dialogue says, Make love, not war. Isn't that what people say? Unless all you know is war. Maybe something else is required then. A jolt, a lightning bolt, illumination, revelation, inspiration. And then everything is different. And you are never the same. You are awake. So next issue, we have a picture of North Star with three slices through him. Obviously Wolverine's claws. Um, Alright, so this book. Um, it was alright. The art by Walter is still pretty good. Other than the nitpicky thing, I don't like the way he did. I just really... The way he did Gambit's powers bugged me because it didn't look like Gambit at all. Um, the rest of the art's pretty good. You know, I like it. I dig it. Um, I don't know. The story kind of fell flat a little bit, I thought. I know they're trying to, like, it's Marjorie Lee's way of interpreting Warbird's kind of backstory from Wolverine and the X-Men, that issue where they talked about her being an artist as a child and it kind of forced out of her. That she liked to draw, but she couldn't. She wanted to be a good warrior. And the Shi'ar don't let their warriors draw. And at the end of this book, she's kind of back to that place. Because she buried it deep inside of her. So she's kind of becoming a more two, yeah, two-dimensional character. A multi-dimensional character. Instead of just being one note. Um, so I like that part of it. Hopefully she'll be a little bit cooler now. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was alright. Not bad. Um... I don't know, kind of flipping through it again, just kind of thumbing through it, looking at it. Yeah, it was just kind of, it was an average story with good art, and we see Warbird's character develop kind of through the uh, foil of this Fiendin artificial intelligence robot thing. So, that's cool, I guess. Um, I'm going to give Astonishing X-Men number 58 two claws, but it's it's not the strongest two claws ever. But anyway, two out of three claws for Astonishing X-Men number 58. All right, moving on. Okay, so now we have Uncanny Avengers number three. It is uh, written by Rick Remender. Art by John Cassidy. Laura Martin does the colors. VC's Chris Eliopoulos is the letterer. And Cassidy and Martin did the cover. Uh, there's a variant cover by Simone Bianchi which I don't think I've seen yet. 
I'll have to go look for that. But on the cover that we have, or that I have, you have Red Skull standing up, screaming, one arm raised in the air. You have Thor flying at him, Captain America behind him, and Havoc behind him. It's a pretty cool cover uh, by Cassidy. It's really nice. Of course, where we left off, the Red Skull dug up, exhumed Charles Xavier, and took his brain. And he's using it as his own. <laughs> like I guess say, one of my favorite parts about this book is how like old school comic book it is. A little bit of like noir taste to it as well. Alright, so now Red School is implementing his plan. He's going to go out to... He had set loose Avalanche. Kind of a, a Frankenstein zombie version of Avalanche. in this To destroy part of New York City. And... As Captain America kind of pulled Havoc and some of the Avengers together to stop him. Well, now uh, Red Skull has gone to the site of the violence. And he's using his newfound telepathic powers to convince people that mutants are responsible. And everyone must band together to defeat the mutants who are a threat to the city. I gotta say, the way Cassidy draws Red Skull's Kind of mind control looks awesome. It's like concentric circles coming out from his head in red and yellow with yellow lines kind of cutting through it. And this first scene of him standing on top of the police car, touching his head like Professor X used to and extending his arm is, is possibly my favorite panel in the book. And he talks about how there, there was already tension in the air because of what Avalanche had done. It was pretty easy to twist that into hatred. And prejudice. And so he convinces them to bond together to be the chemotherapy to get rid of the cancer of mutants in the city. And then he brings in... So, alright, so his little hoodlums that we've had the first couple of issues are called the S-Men. And they're basically people that he's augmented... Uh, let's see. Physical alteration, cellular amalgamation, and Zola's... Zola... Uh his genetic enhancement therapy, and the possession of cursed relics. They have given over their lives for this moment. And we find out through the story they've all been uh, hurt by mutants, either losing their family to a mutant accident or something else. So all these S-men have, have given themselves willingly to be changed to try to have a chance to get back to the mutants. And Professor Red Skull... <laughs> Also has Rogue and Scarlet Witch under his power. And she gets, he gets them to stand before the people and confess that it's mutants like them that are responsible for everything that's wrong. And they even use the right language. Calling the act of terrorism an act of courage. Saying, we will not rest until our world is free of the human threat. So obviously the people turn on them and quickly... The Red Skull also gives the people, I don't know if he tricks them or what, but he somehow gets the people convinced that they can see the X gene in people. So they start targeting mutants in the city and attacking them. It is great because while all this is going on, Red Skull is holding a glass of, I can't tell if that's whiskey or something, but some kind of alcoholic beverage, and Honest John is pouring it to him. Understanding in the middle of all this new chaos, and Red Skull is just getting his own personal drink. thought that was pretty cool. Then, of course, our Uncanny Avengers show up. Uh, 
the nice panel of Captain America throwing his shield and, and this pink Aladdin looking guy, or I guess more than genie than Aladdin. Uh, he's called Dangerous Jin. He's basically a pink genie. But uh, he gets smashed in the face of Captain America's shield. And we have Captain America, Havoc, and Wolverine on the scene. And Captain America, of course, is deferring to Havoc. And it says, Alex Summers briefly considers to whom he is giving orders. But there is no time for nerves here. And so his plan is to rescue the mutants from the mob. And obviously get to the center of it. And so they move in. Wolverine takes out some cops that are beating a mutant. Havoc helps them. Havoc decides they need to split up. Captain America calls them out. But then Havoc calls out Captain America. Says, you wanted me leaning. I'm leaning. You want me to step down. You just give the say-so. And Captain America's like, no, no, no. I shouldn't second-guess you. And Havoc says, good. Now get out there and save people. Go be Captain America. We have an awesome panel of him running out. I like I like it in this book. He doesn't look as chubby as he did in issue one. <laughs> so that's good. And then he says, and you, go be Wolverine. And he smiles and Wolverine growls and we get a, our first snick of the book. So he pops his claws and gets ready to go to work. He has Havoc's blessing to go be Wolverine on their asses. And then Thor shows up and shoots the lightning into a mob. And another awesome panel, he lands on the ground. And we get a close-up of his eyes, and he's like, you! And he throws his hammer. And I guess his storm had disrupted Red Skull's control just momentarily. So Scar- Scarlet Witch and Rogue break free. And then Thor gets Goldberg by a giant turtle dude. And it turns out his name is Mazee. And he has the power of the gravity of the true soul, an African god. He is the impossible strength. Uh, Mazi is the African lord of physical will, unstoppable by any force on earth. But Thor is not of earth, and he throws his hammer and knocks the guy out. <laughs> this is awesome. He says, sleep well, unstoppable force. And then Honest John comes up, and he starts talking to Thor with his mind powers. And Captain America is starting to give in to the Red Skull's persuasion as well. And kind of gets surrounded, and he... He momentarily, like, bucks it and kind of gets that... You can get that awesome comp scene you get in comic books where a guy's kind of being buried by people and he busts out of the pile of people. Captain America's like, no! Because he has... His resolve is unwavering, it says. <laughs> this is kind of old school, too. Uh, it says, Skull's hatred finds no grip on his noble heart. <laughs> kind of cheesy, but really fun. And you love to see that in a comic book. And then Havoc rescues a girl, but Captain America jumps up and he's arguing with Havoc. You can tell he's kind of very conflicted. And he, he starts really kind of bullying Havoc a little bit. Havoc knocks, slaps his hand away from him and says, Get a hold of yourself, soldier! And he realizes that um, Captain America is falling to, into Red Skull's plan. Then we see Wolverine, which I didn't know this. Um, it says that Wolverine hadn't taken a life since Charles Xavier's funeral. His attack was measured, his intentions non-lethal. And he's fighting the uh, insect guy. He gets stabbed in the eye with a poison that makes you see your worst possible future nightmare. But Wolverine doesn't see that. He sees the end of Uncanny X-Force 
where Dawkins laying face down in a pool of blood. And it says, for this man has already lived his greatest nightmare. And Wolverine's like, I'm so sorry, as Carl Witch says. So that's what it sounds like when you apologize, as she takes out the insect. As Healing Factor starts to take care of the, the drug, the toxin, and Scarlet Witch and Rogue approach him, and Rogue says, we need the X-Men. Scarlet Witch says, we need the Avengers. And Wolverine says, lucky dames, you got them both. And he smells Red Skull. And Scarlet Witch looks at Rogue and says, tell him. And Rogue stumbles and says, it's, it's much worse than just the Red Skull. Logan, he dug up Charles. He's bonded himself to Xavier's brain. And Wolverine growls and starts to drool, and it says the change happens immediately. The man is gone. The killer is set loose, and Wolverine runs off like a, he looks like a wild animal. <laughs> it's awesome. That's probably my second favorite panel. He's got drool coming out of his mouth. He's running kind of like a monkey runs, or like kind of like Sabretooth did in the. Uh, remember in the uh, Wolverine Origins movie, how Sabretooth kind of ran like an animal. That's kind of what this looks like. And Scarlet Witch is like, stop, damn it, we need a plan. And Rogue tells her to save her breath. He's reached foaming at the mouth. We're well past the make a plan phase. Then so we find out that Honest John is getting to Thor by making Thor, his power is not just to influence people, but to make them think that he's the, the most influential person they know. So Thor thinks he's talking to Odin, and Odin is telling him, that the mutants are deviant on Midgard, that he's on the wrong side of the biggest threat to mankind, and Odin wants Thor and Asgard to be on the right side of the battle. And then Wolverine jumps at Red Skull, and the uh, Red Skull's telepathic powers tip him off, but Wolverine still slices off his hand, which is awesome. That's another of my favorite scenes in this book, as Wolverine just... Man, just cuts that hand right off. But then, um, the guy who looks kind of like the gargoyle, who, he's something whisperer or something, I think. He uses his hands and words blowing the air and knock people over. So he's blowing at Wolverine. Wolverine thinks, or no, I'm sorry, the narrator is just the third person in this book, this time. And I can't, don't remember it being that way in the first two issues, but it is in this issue. And I'm okay with changing the writing style from book to book. That's cool. Um, but anyway, it says this, because I want to read this part. It says, Wolverine had often considered how fortunate the world was that the great power Charles Xavier possessed was given to a noble and ethical man. Should such power have been born to a weak man, the consequences would have been catastrophic. But this, this is the worst possible scenario. Wolverine's dug his claws into the ground, trying not to get blown away. There was only one way out. The Red Skull must die. And then the goat-faced girl stares at him as he charges back at Red Skull. I'm not sure why the the wind bat gargoyle lady quit blowing him away. I guess she just got tired. <laughs> and she just stops. And Wolverine charges back at Red Skull. But the goat-faced girl activates her depletion effect, which that's... These bad guys' powers are silly but awesome. I don't know, maybe it's just the way it's written. Because in a different writer, I might hate these characters, but I actually kind of like them. But somehow, she's been given the power to negate the X gene. So Logan loses his healing factor. And in another great panel, 
Thor is flying down at him with his hammer and crashes into him. Then we see Thor carrying off Wolverine's broken body as Red Skull tells Honest John, Poor! He pours him another drink. And he talks about how Thor is like the perfect like Aryan god. And he bows down to Red Skull. And that's kind of where we end. We get a zoom out of the city in destruction. We have a, a guy that's been hung up. I'm assuming he was a mutant. Just a random mutant. And to be continued. This story was awesome. It is so much fun. Um, it is. It's it's silly and comic booky, but in all the right ways. And Remender is crafting just a really fun, old school feeling, like retro tale of comic book goodness and I'm loving it. Um Cassidy's art is really good. Uh the colors and inks, letters, everything is great. I guess, but just remember, the best word I have right now is, is fun. It has some of the darkness of the stuff he did on X-Force, but this book is just plain. It's fun and crazy, and I just, I like it a lot. Hope everybody else does too. Anyway, I'm going to give Uncanny Avengers number three, three out of three claws. I'm, I'm loving this book. Can't wait for the next one. So Uncanny Avengers number three, three out of three claws. Love it. Okay, so now it's time for Where's Logan? Alright, I'm going to start off with an uh, admission? Confession? Something like that. So I'm aware that Wolverine was in Avengers Assemble and X-Men Legacy this month. I'm not going to talk about either one of them. Um, well, except for what I'm about to say right now. <laughs> so I guess I will talk, but I won't really review them because I didn't read either one. And Avengers Assemble, he just stands around in the background a little bit. And while there is a nice um, Bluebell ice cream reference, which as a Texan, I love the ice cream and respect the reference. Um, Wolverine doesn't really do anything in it. He just kind of, there's some shots of like all the Avengers at the mansion or in Stark Tower or whatever, wherever they live now. (laughs) And Wolverine is included in them. And I think he's drinking, like, a milkshake or something. I don't even remember. But um, anyway, that's all he does. And in X-Men Legacy, he's just in one panel fighting. Throwing his claws around. Didn't read that either. So, I just want you guys to know that I'm aware that Wolverine appeared in both of those books this month. And I'm kind of intentionally skipping them. Because <laughs> why it was... A Wolverine appearance per se. It really had nothing to do with either story. So. In that regards. And because I'm not really into either of those books right now. um, That's all I'm going to say about it. Where we will pick up. Is with Avengers number three. This is written by Jonathan Hickman. With art by Jerome Pena. Colors by Dean White. And Frank Martin with Richard Eisenhoff. Letters by VCs Corey Pettit. And the cover is by Dustin Weaver and Justin Ponsor. And there were variant covers by Mark Brooks and Adi or Adi Granov. The cover is the, uh, I got just a regular Weaver cover. The Granov cover looked pretty sweet. I don't think I've seen the Mark Brooks yet. Uh, I may look for that later online. But the Weaver cover that I have is really nice. It's the uh, third part of his uh, triptych, I guess. 
It has Iron Man in the new Bumblebee armor, Hawkeye in his movie garb, Spider-Woman and Spider-Man, and then complete kind of the image that carried across the first three covers. It's really nice. I'm, I'm a Weaver fan, and his little three-part cover was pretty cool, so I'm glad to have the third part. And uh, let's get into the story. Uh, we start off on Mars. Of course, I remember these these three big bad guys are trying to uh, they're sending creation bombs to Earth, and they're trying to kind of rebuild Earth. And so they're there, and they're creating their their own atom or their first being to kind of kickstart creation and repopulating the earth they're going to form in their own fashion. But he comes out of his little alien sack womb. <laughs> and um, he talks in a language that's just a bunch of symbols. And so the bad guys, not, they're really not bad guys per se, I guess. The Well, they I don't know. They are. They're villains, I guess. At least in our story, they're the antagonist. We'll say that. The antagonist realized something's wrong and he's not, he's talking in the language of the builders. Which remember from this version of the creation of the Marvel Universe, the builders are the ones that go out and, and make the new worlds. I do like that this guy is very vaguely, not va- vaguely, um, ambiguously ethnic. So he could be like any race or culture. And I think that's cool because we don't know what the first human looked like. We have ideas based on probably the part of the world that he probably came from. Um, anyway, I'm just glad we live in modern days because this was the 60s. It would have just been some guy that looked like Thor. You know, some white blonde guy. I'm glad that's not the case. So, uh, what's his name? The bad guy, ex, ex Nilo, is not too concerned that this guy is quote-unquote broken or not what they thought he was, that he has a builder in him. And he, he decides that's just kind of the spontaneity of creation. So basically, he gives kind of Jeff Goldblum's speech from Jurassic Park that creation is chaos. And then the, the rest of the Avengers that weren't captured show up. Remember, uh, the Avengers from the Avengers movie came to Mars to stop these guys, and they all got captured by Captain America. So he comes back with a bunch of random Avengers. and we, Well, not all random. Some characters we know, some I don't know at all and don't really care to know. Um, <laughs> I.E. Hyperion. I could give less shit about another wannabe Superman. Just saying. Anyway, uh, I guess I'll point out now that I'm still a fan of Opania's art. This first inter... The introduction scene of Captain America in this book is really nice. Flying through the air. The colors are really good too and the inks. So it's just a really nice panel by the, the whole art team. Very good, very good. Um, The Avengers fight. And they kind of go through. Uh, there's these seed bombs that let these like alien wolves and pterodactyls come out. And... In a very kind of stupid turn of events, Falcon can control the bird aliens because there's part bird in them. I I don't know. You know, I think the Falcon looks cool. 
I love his suit. His powers are kind of dumb. I mean, really, he sees through birds and talks to birds. It's like all the worst parts of Aquaman with the bird version. I really enjoyed him in the uh, in the Broodbaker Captain America book, that run where he was just kind of being a badass and not really. They did the bird thing every now and then, but like that's the first trick they go to with the Falcon in this book. So, bleh. Um, there is a cool scene with Wolverine where Spider-Man is trying to free the Avengers from this, like, tree vine thing they're trapped in. And he's like, oh man, this stuff is like molded titanium. This is going to take too long to pull off. If only we had some way to dot, dot, dot. And Wolverine gets into space and he says, cut it or something. And we get our snick as Wolverine pops one claw. And Spider-Man's like, right. So, uh, Wolverine, uh, cuts Thor free, and that turns the tide of the battle. He shoots some super baddies with giant Martian lightning, and some really cool panels. A panel of, uh, the, kind of the hammer rumbling, and then him sticking his hand in the air. Then we see him catch it. The colors on the lightning and the hammer are really nice in this issue, too. So, when the... Uh, bad lady girl gets struck with lightning. She loses control of the Hulk. And then uh, Captain Universe turns the tide. Um, the three bad guys recognize that this is the universe deity that they worshipped. So they bow down. Uh, Aleph decides no, he's not going to recognize the deity and still destroy the world. So Captain Universe disintegrates him into a bajillion pieces. And then they decide that the Avengers are going to take the new Adam back and try to figure out what's going on with them. But Ex Nilo and um, Abyss are allowed to keep Mars. It's, it's a dead planet that's no longer alive. And they're going to be allowed to bring it back to life. So I'm going to assume... From here for at least the next little while in the Marvel Universe, the Mars will be like a habitable planet of sorts at least. And then the Avengers go back with a stern warning that they get Mars, but they better stay on Mars. If they come for Earth again, there'll be hell to pay. And you know it's true because they have Captain Universe. I don't like Captain Universe. And then the Avengers go back and talk about how it started with two men, but then it expanded. Of course, referring to Iron Man and Captain America. One was life, it says, over a goofy-looking picture of Steve Rogers. And one was death, over Tony Stark. That's the only part of the story that actually intrigued me. I'm not sure what they're talking about there. Is that foreshadowing something really bad going to happen to Iron Man? I don't know. Um, art was great. Book kind of irked me. Uh, the bad guys, kind of the whole story. All right, first of all, as a Wolverine podcast, Wolverine's part was cool. He, uh, <laughs> he, he gave us a snicked in the middle of uh, some Spider-Man lines. The interplay worked really well. And he cut loose Thor with his claws, and that's kind of what allowed the Avengers to get the upper hand in the battle. Some Wolverine played a key part. As a Wolverine fan, I was glad to see that. Um, 
I don't like that the bad guys just kind of recognize Captain... Or I'm sorry. Is it Captain Universe, I guess? Miss Universe, whatever. And like, oh, oh, you know, kind of like when the Ewoks... Uh, when uh, Luke levitates C-3PO, the Ewoks, like, just quit. They give up on taking him prisoner and bow down instead of loose. Like, these, these guys, these all, these super powerful, like, cosmic bad guys, like, they recognize Captain Universe and they just fold and submit. Uh, you know what? Maybe it's not as bad as I thought. Maybe if it wasn't Captain Universe... And it was something else. I might be more in favor of the idea as a as a narrative. It's not that bad. I just don't like Captain Universe. And I really the thing that bugs me most about this story is Hickman's writing this story like he's somehow pinning and initiating, originating the expansion of the Avengers. That's bunk. The Avengers have been like a ginormous team forever. I know that Bendis had, like, a core of characters that he worked with during his super long run. But he expanded the Avengers. I mean, there's never... The Avengers haven't been a small unit since, like, the 60s or maybe the early 70s at the latest. And the fact that Hickman's kind of acting like this is some new story he's telling is kind of insulting to my intelligence. And... The thing is, Hickman is supposed to be, like, the intelligent, cerebral writer. And I just don't understand why, um... I don't know. I know in comics you tell stories over and over again. The serial nature kind of forces you to do that to some degree. The good writers put fresh spins on it, new perspectives. I don't feel like this story did any of that. The art was really good. Uh, I still feel like Opinion, especially, like... On this last page, there's every now and then his art gets a little goofy looking, but I do really enjoy it for the most part. And some of his posing is pretty fantastic, so no real complaints there. Yeah, the book was okay. It kind of the first arc started off better than it ended, taking out the idea that this is somehow supposed to be the origin story of an expanded Avengers. I know he's introducing new characters, but I mean, geez, Bendis brought in Spider Man and Wolverine and people that were never Avengers before. And so, I don't know. And also, the people he's expanding to, I don't even care about. I mean, Captain Universe, no thanks. Um, Hyperion, pass. Uh, the Smasher Girl, or whatever her name's gonna be. I like strong female characters, but not super fond of her so far. His version of Falcon, not that cool yet, but I do like Falcon. Carol Danvers, pass. Spider-Woman, uh, Bendis made me like, but I didn't really like her before that. So we'll see if Pikmin can, uh, ruin her for me or keep her cool. We'll see. Um, Cannonball and Sunspot haven't really done anything yet. I like their inclusion on the team. They're overall kind of a disappointing issue, um, but it ended a pretty good story. It's a very weak two claws, but I'm going to give Avengers 3 two out of three claws. Kind of half-heartedly. <laughs> I don't feel like it was bad enough to say it was only one claw. But, um... I almost do. But, the final judgment for now is going to be Avengers 3, 2 out of 3 claws. Alright, so let's move to uh, Uncanny X-Force number 1. I was hoping Wolverine would pop in this book so I could talk about it, you know. 
after we covered the Uncanny X-Force run that Wolverine led. Uh, this book is by... Let me find the credits here. They're here somewhere. Are they at the end, maybe? Yes, <laughs> they're on the last page. There you go. All right, Uncanny X-Force number one, Let It Bleed. Sam Humphreys is the writer. Ron Garney is the penciler. Danny Mickey, or Mickey, is the inker. Marte Gracia with Israel Gonzalez is a colorist. VC's Corey Pettit is a letterer. Oliver Coppell and Laura Martin did the cover. And uh, Garney did a variant cover with Gracia and Scotty Young also did a, uh, I think one of his new uh, baby variant covers. All right, so this cover by Coppell is pretty nice. Um, little odd choice. We have Bishop in the background and kind of a color scheme that, that fades from lime green to red from top to bottom. Um, I just say it's a slightly odd choice because Bishop doesn't show up to the very end. So it's weird that he got a top building on the cover. But then we also have the team. We have Storm, Lady Phantom X, Spiral, Psylocke, and Puck. And Puck, gotta like his odds, right? Him and four girls on a team? There you go. So I'm just gonna start off saying I'm not real familiar with Sam Humphreys. Uh, this, this might be the first book I've read of his um, that I know of. I think he did, um, yeah, he did some stuff in the Ultimate Universe, and I don't, I haven't read any of that in a long time. I checked out of the Ultiverse uh, quite a ways back. Ron Garney, of course, big fan of. Um, did some really cool stuff in Wolverine in particular that I really enjoyed, really like his Wolverine. I gotta say, as, as much as I've liked him before, this, this issue might be his best work. It is really, really, really good. Um, I would say excellent. Awesome. Just, just fantastic. Let's dive right in. Uh, basically, we start off kind of in the present. And Psylocke's attacking Spiral in a dance club. And then we see uh, Psylocke and Storm in the present. This outside of LA. And Psylocke's flying in some like futuristic hover car. Like a hot rod. Like, a, like an old sports car or an old race car. With machine guns on the bottom. And of course Storm's in a Mohawk. But they're flying around. And Psylocke. Um, basically we're talking about how she doesn't feel like she fits in. Xavier's. Not Xavier's. Um, the Jean Grey school. Sorry. <laughs> Had a flashback to old X-Men continuity there for a minute. But she did her little time where she went off with Phantom X. After the end of the last Uncanny X-Force. And then we see her uh, attacking Quentin Choir. <laughs> Apparently he has some perverse thoughts about Psylocke. And Storm says, yeah, you didn't seem very happy there. So we get a flashback. Um, it's in black and white, except for some pink Psylocke memory. Kind of showing her uh, psychic powers. And basically Wolverine is kicking Psylocke out of the school. And he's like, no, I'm not kicking you out. I can't have you assaulting my students. That's, that's my job. This is the third time I've had to change your class assignment. You disappeared on us and then showed up a month ago without warning. You've been impossible to be around ever since. And I kind of mixed feelings about Wolverine wearing a tie. I know he's taking his uh, role at the school seriously. Still not sure he'd wear a tie. But maybe he would. I don't know. 
Uh, you guys should argue over that. My listeners should uh, start some threads, some comments, argue about whether it's, it's fitting for Wolverine to be in a tie or not. Now, granted, his sleeves are rolled up, and he's not wearing a sport coat. I was wondering if he would wear, I know he would wear one like if the occasion called for it. I'm not sure being in the office at the Jean Grey School is that occasion. <laughs> anyway, um, basically he says that the school is not, the, he knows she's not comfortable there at the school. And he has some loose ends that need to be tied up after they ended X-Force. And Psylocke's like, you're giving me a mission? And Wolverine says, Betsy, I got to put X-Force a million miles behind me. I'm a respectable headmaster now. I can't be quote-unquote giving missions. I'm just a friend giving you some advice. <laughs> and she's like, so you're kicking me out of school. And Wolverine's like, damn it, just get out of here and check your email, okay? And so we go back. Uh, Storm says she's concerned that she doesn't want Psylocke to go back to some more uh, destructive habits. And Psylocke flashes back to breaking her brother's neck. And Psylocke's like, no, I'm done with that. S.H.I.E.L.D. talks to him and says they're in their unidentified and restricted airspace without proper from permission from the Avengers, which I didn't know they had that much control. Um, oh, okay, because S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D. is talking to him. I'm sorry. So, yeah, I guess the Avengers kind of rank pretty high with S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, Psylocke says the Avengers can go F themselves. <laughs> Storm, Storm says, well, that's how this trip is going to be. <laughs> and Psylocke tries to turn the table on Storm saying she's trying to get away from some, from some stuff too particularly maybe her uh, the breakup of her marriage with Black Panther so um, then we find out the mission the story there's a designer drug going around LA the dance clubs and they're trying to figure out what it is so they go and meet Puck and Puck <laughs> I know it's intentional but he's like the biggest douche ever. Or the biggest little douche ever. He's super misogynistic. And of course he's just fresh back from hell. And so he kind of ogles. He's, he's hitting on some bar flies. And then he kind of ogles Storm and Psylocke as soon as they walk in. He says. He, he says he's sorry to hear about Storm's marriage. And says why I swore off marriage after the fourth try. Being single agrees with you. Uh, he refers to himself as a scoundrel, which that's probably a better, uh, better uh, ad noun adjective, <laughs> a better descriptive noun than douchebag. Scoundrel probably fits a little better. He he says Psylocke has legs taller than him, <laughs> and Psylocke tells him to choose his words carefully and his thoughts. And he says, "My thoughts. Take a look. Maybe you'll see something you like." Yeah, kind of douchey. And Puck refers to them as being additions to his team. And they go to an old bank that's a dance club. And it turns out that the drug dealer is Spiral. And of course, Psylocke goes nuts because her and Spiral have a very violent history. Where, uh, Psylo uh, where Spiral tore out her eyes in the Mojoverse. And replaced them with the cybernetic eyes for Mojo to see through. I don't think he can see through them anymore. But obviously, very painful experience. So Psylocke jumps in and attacks Spiral. They fight. Some really cool fight scenes. Are really great art. And the color work is fantastic. So major props through the whole book. But especially in this scene. To uh, Marte Gracia and Israel Gonzalez. 
So they keep fighting. Storm freezes the vault. I didn't know she could do that, but it makes sense. And they find out, and there's a little girl inside who's been controlling everybody. I guess she's giving off, like, the drug. And so all the people in the club go crazy and get Psylocke. And then we switch to Union Station in downtown L.A. There's a nice lightning ball. And finally, I made it back. I'm back. And it's Bishop. And I'm noting here he has both his arms. And he's back to the, well, not his present, but our present. Of course, he was from the future anyway. Then he got trapped in the way future when he tried to uh, kill Cable and Hope. But now he's back. And then we switch to Paris. Phantom X and Lady Phantom X are being chased by the Parisian police. La police. I'm sorry, Lady Phantom X is called Cluster. I was trying to remember what she was called, and that's what it is. Because she was the really nice brain and the one that raised uh, Evan in um, virtual reality. So she was Uncle Cluster. I guess now she's just Cluster because she couldn't <laughs> be an uncle anymore anyway. So they escape... And then, oddly enough, make out. So I guess Phantom X got over Psylocke and decided to be in love with himself. (laughs) In the most narcissistic panel ever, we get a full-page spread of Phantom X making out with Cluster. So basically, making out with himself. Alright, so the book was pretty fun. Um... My first foray into Sam Humphrey's work went fairly well. Get some nice character building interaction between Storm and Psylocke. I don't... I know that Puck is supposed to be gruff around the edges. I'm not sure if I like how much of a dick he's being. We'll see if that kind of mellows out a little bit. I know this is kind of the first introduction of him. I mean, honestly, I'm not being much of an Alpha Fly fan. I haven't read that much of him anyway. I've read some. I don't know how different or same this is. I know he's always been rough around the edges. I always remember him being a little bit more of a smooth, of a charmer. And nothing he said in this book was charming <laughs> at all. Like I said, a little misogynistic for my taste. But he's supposed to be kind of a rough around the edges guy. Thought he was played a little too rough. But overall, uh, a good story. Um... As, as kind of weird as it is, I'm interested to see how we got to the place where uh, Phantom X and Cluster are making out <laughs> with each other. And there's still that other third bad Phantom X running around. I'm really interested to see when he pops up. We don't really find anything out about Bishop other than that it looks like he somehow got his arm back. But I'm curious. I'm, I've always been a Bishop fan, so I'm curious to see where this goes. So Sam Humphreys has my attention. And like I said... I've always been a Ron Garney fan, but I feel like this this might be his best issue to date. So between the potential of the story here in our setup number one issue and the just plain awesome art, I'm going to give Uncanny X-Force number one three out of three claws. Very curious to see what happens in issue two. So that's what you ask for in a book. You want to be anticipating what comes next. Alright, so briefly, going to talk about A plus X number 4. The cover is a Kari Andrews cover with Beast and Spider-Man that's fantastic. It kind of reminds me of the old first from the 90s Spider-Man title. You know, the one that Todd McFarlane started? 
I think number 15, I think, had when Eric Larson took over the book for a little uh, run. He had a cover that was also a yellow background with Beast and Spider-Man on it. And this cover kind of evokes that. The color choice, the posing. It's not the same, but it evokes that memory. I'm not actually really going to talk about that story. Uh, there is a Beast and Spider-Man story uh, written and drawn by Kari Andrews. Or Carrie Andrews? I'm not sure which one's right. Colors by Lee Lafridge. Letters by VCs Clayton Coles or Cows. It's an interesting story with an alternate future of beast people. But what I'm going to talk about is the Captain America and Quentin Quire story. Written by Jason Latour. Pencils by David Lopez. Inks by Alvaro Lopez. Jim Caralampi... Oh wait, is that a deed or no? I think it's Caralampidus is the colorist. I hope I said that right. And VCs Clayton Coles or Cows is also the letterer on this one. So he pulled a little double duty. So let's skip to that story. Um, it's a really good story. It's basically the uh, story of Captain America and Quentin Choir teaming up. Uh, and Choir's shirt has slogans on it that change, which I thought was cool because he can kind of make people see what he wants them to see. His first shirt he's wearing here was Ivan Drago was robbed. <laughs> so that's nice. So apparently, you know, remember uh, this this story obviously takes place a little ways back. Remember there was a point um, after one of the stories when Quentin Quire was kind of confiscated by the Avengers and sent back to Wolverine's custody at the school. I'm trying to remember what story that was. That the Avengers took him. He did something. And actually set off a story. Because. He did a mutant terrorist thing. Like he attacked a courtroom or something. Oh. What the hell story was that? That was in. Hold on. Oh it's uh, during schism. So this. This takes place before. Or. Between Schism and the start of Wolverine and the X-Men, I'm assuming. So anyway, uh, Captain America having Choir in Avengers custody takes him on a mission because he needs his psychic defenses. And of course, they get to this house and they're looking for some aim. And there's a town that's a front. Kind of reminds me of Springfield from G.I. Joe. There's a nice little too-perfect-to-be-real town that's, that's a front for aim. And Quick Choir's like, yeah, about this team up. Look, I'm trying anything a half dozen times or so, but this whole Aryan Ubermensch as Sentinel of Liberty thing, bit too ironic mustache, even for me. He says, you and your stupid square jaw, your stupid jackboots, and those adorable little wings on your stupid fat head. <laughs> and Captain America says, you know, Logan swears you actually give half a damn choir. In fact, he's the only reason you have this one pleading chance to prove it. If you want to try to break into my mind, you're welcome to try. And we see that uh, Captain America has some pretty strong psychic defenses in the form of a giant shield. So Captain America goes into a basement in the kitchen. And uh, Quentin Choir has angels and devils. The angel is played by a version of himself in a Professor X wheelchair. And the devil is played by a version of himself in Magneto's uniform. 
And he decides to kick the door closed. And Captain America's like, damn it, choir. And this little story, by the way, is called The New Deal? Question mark. So Steve Rogers is wandering around in the basement. And we flash back to a bar scene where we have Wolverine. And he's like, I just don't know where to begin, Logan. These kids can't grow up resenting us. They have to feel they can talk to us. And Wolverine says, look, Steve, I'm a mutant. Me and the kids are in that together, so I mostly get a pass. But you, that shield, that flag, it just don't mean mean the same to them as it does to you. You want their trust? Showing the man beneath it all. So I I decided to cover this story because I thought that was insightful. Kind of Wolverine espousing that, um, you know, to some kids, especially mutant kids, that the whole uber-patriotic Captain America thing doesn't have the same appeal. So you got to get past that and show that you're a strong dude that stands up for good stuff. I do like the scene in the bar because Wolverine has five empty mugs of beer and he's working on a six and Captain America has one bottle of fake Coke. <laughs> so uh, while Captain America is wandering around in the basement and setting off in tuner alarms, Quentin Choir is uh, sitting on a couch reading a magazine. And he gets pulled down psychically. He's like, so now you want me in your head? Let me guess, you just happen to wander into the very kind of thing you brought me along to prevent. Right, and Wolverine's a a social drinker. He says, look, the cry for attention years is a total psycho stalker move. Maybe I've been teased, but I only stuck around to hear you beg for my hope, okay? You gotta face it, you can never join my dojo, Daniel, son. I'm a Cobra Kai liver. Die? There's a tight army of timing modok they're called mo gods microscopic oddities generated only for disintegration question mark <laughs> uh qq quentin choir calls them angry floating munchkins and he makes a telepathic gun and helmet and starts shooting them and young captain young steve rogers shows up young skinny scrawny steve and he saw he tells them they got he's got to help them Fight these guys out of his psyche. Psyche. Uh, his shirt has changed to F for France. <laughs> Which is funny. They fight him off and the big shield comes back down. And Captain America's psyche is protected again. And he tells Quentin Choir that he's done his job and he's free to go. <laughs> he has a shirt that says, Say my name more, bitch. <laughs> That's my favorite one of his shirts. <laughs> and Quentin Choir suddenly realizes he's excited. He's like, I just teamed up with you. Do you even know what that means? I've got an image to maintain. All the other kids need is doubt, the smallest crack. There's no ore after this. You really think I've got another option? And so Captain America throws Choir into the Jean Grey school in handcuffs. And Quentin Choir is now wearing a shirt that says, Magneto, how's he work? And Choir screaming at the top of his lungs. Ha! Big talk, big man. You think I'm locked in here with them? They're locked in here with me! With me! And I'm pretty sure that's the line he said in Wolverine and the X-Men. So that's cool. Nice callback. And as they walk away, Captain America scowls, but then he smiles where no one can see him. And Quentin Choir grins where no one can see him. And that's the end. So I thought that story was really kind of cool. Um... It was an unexpected team-up and a nice one and filled in some gaps and continuity very nicely. So, uh, 
Overall, I'm going to give A plus X number four, two out of three claws. Now, that story was pretty good. I really enjoyed the uh, Andrew's art in the first arc, and the interaction between Beast and Spider-Man was cool, but the story was kind of dumb. So that kind of drags the book down a little bit. Um, but overall, I will give A plus X number four, two out of three claws. Okay, so the last thing we got is Punisher Warzone number four. Guilty. Written by Greg Rucka, or Ruka. I like Rucka. Pencils by Carmine D. John Domenico. Colors by Matt Hollingsworth. Mises Joe Caramagna did the letters. And Marco Cacchetto did the cover. And what a cover it is. It's raining and lightning. And the currently very badass looking Punisher is throwing all the Avengers, well, some of the Avengers in an open grave. We have Bumblebee, Iron Man, Wolverine, Captain America, and Spider-Man. Now remember, uh, Punisher's partner, Sheen Punisher, has been convicted, or is being convicted of killing some cops. They were crooked cops, but they were still cops. And the DA is seeking the death penalty. Of course, the Avengers all believe that the Punisher killed the cops, and they've been hunting him down. So now we start off with um, Captain America, Black Widow, and Iron Man trying to figure out a plan. And Steve Rogers says, The Punisher is many things, one of them a Marine. And Iron Man says, You're putting a lot of stock in Semper Fi. Frank Castle stopped being a Marine a long time ago, Cap. And Cap responds, You never stop being a Marine, Tony. And if you know any Marines, I'm not one. But if you know any, you know that's true. So I can't say from personal pride experience, but having known several friends in the Marine Corps, it, it's simplified till you die. So, um, very true statement. So they to talk about, they consult Black Widow. If you were going to get back into the country, how would you do it? And they talk about different ways. I gotta say, I'm really digging the Punisher with the shaggy hair and shaggy beard. Looks pretty awesome. And so Punisher gets back in town. Oh, and, the, and with the eye patch. <laughs> and because they're about to move, um, she, Punisher, his partner, and they figure that's when the Punisher will strike, now that he knows about it. So they have they make up a plan. Uh, we see, go to the South Bronx, where Punisher bucks up, bucks up, breaks up a, uh, a safe house in an old ghetto apartment. And kills some criminals, sets some slave girls free, and says apparently he had a contact or someone he had dealt with before in this ring. So he lets her live and gives her some Punisher armor. Then we switch to a bar. Wolverine's drinking in the bar. Cap comes in his street clothes. Wolverine probably smells him. We don't, we don't see him turn around. Maybe he saw him out of the corner of his eye, but probably just smelled him. It says, you don't get to drink with me. And Captain America's like, then I'll drink beside you. And Wolverine uh, basically tells Captain America off, which is awesome. That you can't, you can't take down the Punisher without me. He's like, the only one of you who didn't make the wrong move and underestimate him is uh, Natasha, the Black Widow, and he still beat her. He's like, you need me. And Captain America does not have a Coke in this this issue. He grabs a beer and says, maybe, but I can't trust you. And this, I'm not, something, some stuff must, must have happened off panel. I know Captain America's in the know and figures stuff out, has a lot of good intuition, 
But he suddenly he he says you to Wolverine, you told Castle we were coming for him, Logan. You don't know whose side you're on in, in this. And I don't know how he knows this. Black Widow told Wolverine she wasn't going to say anything. Maybe she lied. I didn't get that feeling. But I guess she must have, or Captain America just found out somehow. Maybe he reviewed the same tape, and the Black Widow did. I don't know. The Wolverine protest says, I'm an Avenger. Captain America says, no argument, but this time you're sidelined. And they kind of have a panel where they stare each other down. It's like, your choice, your funeral. Captain America has called his name, Logan. I see you tomorrow. I'm going to assume you're working with him, not us. We clear? And Wolverine on his way out the door says, like I said, your funeral. Captain America looks down. We go to Stark Towers, and Iron Man's doing some virtual computer stuff. And we see Punisher in the background, but Tony Stark's too busy to notice. So we go to Manhattan Criminal Court. Spider-Man is swinging over the city, keeping an eye out. And they put Punisher's partner in handcuffs and an orange jumpsuit in the back of a transport vehicle that Captain America is driving. And Spider-Man says that everything looks good. And Captain America says, well, you wouldn't see him even if he was here. But he's probably going to try to wait and ambush the van outside of the city. So then we switch and Thor is the eye in the sky. And then the van is attacked. We see Captain America get hit with that airbag. Thor swoops in. And we see Captain America sending a radio message to Spider-Man to go, go, go. We can handle this. Get moving. And then we see uh, she, Punisher, bust out the back. Thor opens the door for her and she comes out guns and blazing. So we know something's amiss here. Uh, I figured it out, but I'll save the reveal for the, uh, the actual reveal. The Spider-Man jumps into the court building and we see that the Punisher's partner is still there with one cop. Which I thought was kind of weird that I know they're expecting this bait to work with Black Widow posing as the Punisher's partner, but why would they leave her with one cop? There should be a bunch of cops there. So Spider-Man jumps in. We have some smack talk. And then Bumblebee Iron Man shows up. And he shoots Spider-Man. In a really nice panel where Spider-Man gets has some like Emperor Dark Force electricity around him, and his suit is tore up, and one of his eyepieces is busted, and Spider-Man breaks She Punisher free, and he says, "We don't have much time. I can barely manage to even fly in this thing." And they escape, and Captain America realizes they're being shot at with rubber bullets. And Black Widow walks out with two people in Punisher vest and body armor. And they realize they've been had. Alright, so, thought this issue was really good. A, I love seeing the Punisher's ingenuity. And this is the Punisher I loved as a kid. Making moves, being smart. I'm sure there's going to be some violence left in this series and you want to see a little bit of violence with the Punisher, but this is the Punisher who's very brutal but very strategic. Because he did, he did clear out that that uh, drug room pretty quick and pretty efficiently. So it's still, still the Punisher being hardcore. But I like it when he's really smart and is a soldier in every situation. So I really dug that. I really like Rucka's version of the Punisher here. Um, 
also liked Wolverine and counted the conflict with him and Captain America. I said, you know, when I covered issue number one, that I knew Punisher and Wolverine had a history, and I knew that uh, Wolverine would relate to the Punisher and kind of do what has to get done, and you just do it. And sometimes you have to kill people, because Wolverine thinks that way too. So I said from the beginning, I wondered how Wolverine's involvement in the story would play out. And I like this turn it takes where Captain America kind of calls him out and says he can't be involved in the mission because they can't trust him. So Captain America recognizes that same thing. I thought that was really cool actually bringing attention to it. I also like that Wolverine kind of gives Captain America some flack and calls him out. I've always been of the opinion that Wolverine would have respect for Captain America. As much as I enjoyed his involvement in the Bendis Avengers run, I always felt like it was a little too establishment for Wolverine. And a little too much, he's going to take orders from Captain America. Like I always felt like Wolverine's character would have mad respect for Captain America. What he stands for both being soldiers and fighters and warriors and heroes, that they would identify with each other and be friends. Wolverine being on a team with Captain America, I enjoyed it because Bendis wrote it really well. There's not a whole lot of situations or a whole lot of writers I think can make that work. I feel like Bendis was probably the exception. And team up, yeah, that's great. And we even saw that in some X-Men books. But kind of Wolverine being enlisted as one of Captain America's soldiers. Anyway, it doesn't make complete sense. Bendis pulled it off, and I, I probably said that like five times, so I'll leave that alone. But I enjoyed seeing Wolverine kind of stand up against that and not. I want to see if he shows up in issue five or not, and if so, what capacity. I'm super curious to see what Wolverine does, if he does anything in issue number five. Yeah, I don't know. I guess just Wolverine's always been more of an X-Men and less of an Avenger to me. Because the X-Men have always had kind of that roguish, outside the parameters, you know, drawing outside the lines. Not being bad, but being kind of outside the establishment. Where the Avengers, and they've had their run-ins and in times of trouble. They've always kind of been like the sanctioned superhero team. And the X-Men and the, the brief period in Utopia or San Francisco kind of gave them approval. But overall, X-Men not really sanctioned by anybody but some some of the mutant community. And even not even all of that. So Wolverine always fits better in that situation to me. And point in case, I don't really like the way Hickman is dealing with Wolverine as an Avenger so much. So, yeah, there you go. That's my philosophy. Ah, I would love to hear what everybody else thinks about that. Did Bendis catch lightning in a bottle with Wolverine as an Avenger, or does he make sense to you as an Avenger? I want to hear it. Um, Anyway, I love Rucka's characterization of everybody in this book. I thought it was a nice chapter in the series. So I'm going to give Punisher Warzone number four, three out of three claws. High action, moves the story along really well. All the dialogue and characterization by Rucka was really good. So I'm digging it. Yeah. Punisher Warzone number four, three out of three claws. All right. Well, there is this month's uh, segment of Where's Logan? 
So we'll go ahead and close out. All right. Okay, so uh, that's going to do it for episode number 17. Hope you enjoyed it. Had a lot of stuff. I want some opinions, please. Um, I wonder what everybody thinks about Storm and Wolverine making out. I want to know what everybody thinks. I kind of talked about, you know, Wolverine as an Avenger or not. Kind of old news, but kind of some of this month's issues kind of re-sparked that uh, argument in my head. So I'd like to hear what other people think. Yeah, and to as small as should Wolverine have been wearing a tie in Uncanny X-Force number one. <laughs> anyway, um, always I would love some comments or some iTunes reviews. You can email me at snitcast at yahoo.com. I'm still waiting for my... Uh, first email to read on the air on the podcast so uh, let's go ahead and get that in somebody and um, Facebook page um, please like it uh, that's facebook dot com slash snit podcast fan page you can follow me at tw- on twitter at snitcast is my twitter handle I think that's what you call that so everybody uh Get in, get on the uh, the snit community here. Love to have some more interaction with some more people. But uh, hope you're enjoying the episodes. I uh, had a lot of books in this one. Still working on scheduling for uh, our next uh, kind of flashback episode. I my goal is to have that come out in February. I'm not sure what part of February or whether it'll be before or after anything else in the month. So, can't really say exactly what will be up next episode, but um, we have some things coming down the line. I think the new Adjectivalist Wolverine series starts in February, so I'll probably do an episode featuring that, and then, of course, the February books, and then another flashback episode. So that's, you know, plans change. Right now, that's the three episodes I'm planning on doing next month. So, uh, anyway, you guys take care, and I'll see you next episode. Bye-bye! Oh, no. Hugs and Snicks. That'll be my new outro from now on. (laughs) All right. Bye, guys.